welcome to the Laravel IO podcast. My name is Sean McCool, and I'm here with Taylor Otwell, uh, Jeffrey Way, and Maxim Sergai. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Yep, that's exactly right. Awesome. Nailed it first try. So, <laughs> nice. first of all, thank you guys all for, for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting. Uh, Maxim, it's uh, the first time you're on the show. Uh, could you just take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourself? Um. Okay. Well, um, I'm a, I'm a web developer uh, doing everything in Laravel right now. I um, have over 30 projects that I've built with Laravel, including a website that's called buildwithlaravel.com. And um, I am self-employed and am in process of writing two books. And um, that's about it. So yeah, man, you release a new site like every two weeks. <laughs> it makes some of us look bad because every single time it's like, oh, check out this. Like the, the latest thing you released is pretty sick. The um, <laughs> It's not Laravel related. It's that little polygon wall oh, yeah. generator. That yeah, that was just uh, – I got sick. Yeah, when I get sick, I get really creative. <laughs> the first time I got sick two years ago, I made Bootsnip, and this time I got sick, I made this thing. <laughs> There's probably room for a really inappropriate comment in here, though. I'm just going to pass on that. <laughs> yeah, I've heard some people are wishing me that I, I'm going to be sick all the time so that I'll, I'll do some more cool stuff, but I'm like, ah, oh, no, it's fine. Oh, for me, I get sick, and then I just whine and sleep. So. Yeah, I just play, like, <laughs> Zelda or something, and that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I live in Seattle area. I just moved here from California, um, and before that, I moved from Ukraine 10 years ago. Okay. So it seems like just yesterday that we recorded a podcast. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I was just here. <laughs> no, it's, it's so, good for it to be consistent. Yeah, like I, a I, lot of podcasts I listen to, they'll go three months without releasing anything, and I get it. You know, people are busy, but yeah, it's nice to have a constant thing to listen to. Yeah, it, I, I really like doing it, but uh, it's it's it can be difficult to like schedule everybody and and get everything together. So uh, it's it's I'm really happy to have. You Taylor and and you Jeffrey like kind of recurring people to come back. It makes things a lot easier. We're always here for you. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling in like I hardly ever finish a podcast because I accidentally closed the browser tab first. <laughs> <laughs> so like I've tried to make it through his uh, Bootstrapped FM with Andrew Bootoff, uh, which is an awesome podcast, and but. Uh, I like always get about halfway through and then accidentally close the browser tab and it really sucks. <laughs> I've gotten into this new thing. Like I know it's crazy, but when I when I exercise, like if I go running, I listen to a podcast now and I never did that before. I'd always listen to music, but man, it makes the time go by so fast. I really do recommend it for anyone. Like even if mm. you're just on a treadmill, just put on a podcast and you have to run for as long as that podcast is going, <laughs> which is usually like 30 or 45 minutes. But yeah, I really like it. It's a good way to catch up on this stuff, too. That's exactly what I do, except for usually, like, This American Life or Radio Lab or Freakonomics or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are some awesome This American Life episodes. It's my favorite podcast of all time, basically. <laughs> yeah. Relevant to non-Americans as well, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the stories are really interesting. I, I like it. I need to start exercising, too, also, by the way. That reminded me. <laughs> okay. Before the, the we started recording, we asked a bunch of people on Twitter 
if they had anything interesting to maybe ask or, or anything that we could talk about. And I think we got a lot of really good responses today, actually. Uh, bring it on. Bring it on? Okay. I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, well topic out there. Here, here, I want Taylor and Jeffrey, I want you guys to start talking about testing stuff. Because, Taylor, I saw you say something about 100% minimum. Could you tell me a little bit about that, what you were meaning there? Yeah. Um, well, it all kind of started with earlier today – um, there was a keynote apparently at RailsConf in Chicago by DHH, the guy who's behind Rails. And he was, um, I, I didn't, I caught it kind of, I think I got in about halfway through, but basically he was talking about how he thinks that TDD can sometimes be um, a detriment to your design instead of uh, a way of, instead of improving your design, which this is not really a new topic for him. He's kind of been critical of, um, TDD in the past with various blog articles, but anyway, um, it, it reminded me that on on you know there's kind of been a, a large focus in PHP as we've talked about with better design patterns and better architecture, and as part of that, obviously um, more testing and there's better testing tools like PHP Spec and Behat and Mockery and of course PHP Unit and <clears throat> basically. Um, questioning is 100% code coverage good and um, maybe not so much good, but is it necessarily like a, a something you should shoot for as like an indicator of project quality? So um, with Laravel, like to kind of um, start the discussion kind of where Laravel's at, uh, it doesn't have 100% coverage. And the way I kind of approach testing is I try to test – um, the stuff that has a lot of churn. So like, I don't necessarily test obviously like getters and setters and stuff like that, which is just like return this property or whatever. We don't test that of course, but, um, definitely stuff like eloquent and authentication and all that stuff has a lot of tests. And I do kind of feel like frameworks should have more tests maybe than other stuff, just because it handles a lot of really sensitive, um, code. But, um, yeah, I don't necessarily shoot for 100%, and I don't necessarily do test-driven development very much because I try to kind of keep a um, – I kind of try stay in like a testable mindset rather than necessarily always writing the test first. So as I'm writing code, I'm kind of always thinking, will I be able to test this, you know, when I write some tests? Because I'm always kind of tinkering with, like, what's the best API or – I kind of build the consumable part first before I get down into the um, nitty-gritty um, of writing tests. So, yeah. But in order to get to that point where, like you mentioned, when you're writing code, you're thinking, is this testable? That's one mm -hmm. of those things you you have no idea if it is testable until you start writing these tests. So I could imagine somebody that's never done any kind of TDD or written tests at all, they wouldn't really know what to look for. So all of this stuff we talk about is really connected, like uh, dependency injection and, yep. and all of these principles like they're all very much linked to making testing easier to do but it's one of those things where unless unless you write these tests you won't exactly understand the benefit yeah so like from my perspective when it comes to tdd absolutely not 100 percent. i do like 50 50 honestly the hardest thing is sometimes you're uh, it's really hard. Like, all right, let's say you're doing TDD and you you create a test, but you're not exactly sure what you want to do yet. And I, I guess that's and from one perspective, that's a good thing. It gives you a minute to just take a step back and think, all right, what am I trying to do here? But many times, especially when you're talking about like testing um, 
the messages that are sent from one object to another, you don't really know it all. So uh, in those cases, I'll find myself like, all right, I'll, I'll put away the test and then I'll just play around for a little bit and just see like what this is, what shape this is going to take. And then a lot of people would say, once you have a better feel or a better grasp of what you want to do, then throw away all that code and start over doing TDD. Uh, I don't I don't do that, but I can see the benefit to, to that kind of uh, cycle. Yeah. So how I approach how I approach, like, say I'm going to write a new package, how I would do it or I'm going to write a new feature of Laravel. I open up a blank sublime text document and I write exactly how I want to use it. Uh, so like with cashier, I wrote out user subscription, create user subscription, cancel um, user subscription, prorate with coupon, create blah, blah, blah. I wrote out all those various like consumption, so to speak. And I'm not even thinking if it's testable, like I'm going to make it testable. Like this is the API that's going to happen and I'm going to figure out a way to make it testable. Like I don't start the other way around. And like, if I can't pull that off, like I'm going to keep hacking at it until I hit that API because it's just, that's just the way it has to be. You know what I mean? Like that's just my level of um, how accessible it has to be. And we're going to make the test work that way. So that's kind of why I don't, do tests first, I guess, is because I'm designing that whole API first. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It completely, especially with Cashier, I think, like it's very clear that you designed that API before you wrote the code because it's so intuitive. Like uh, even things like user subscription swap, if you want to like switch your monthly subscription up for a yearly, it's so readable. Yeah. So it's, it's very clear that that the API was well thought out before you had done anything. But some Thanks. people could say you could have written that as a as a test first. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could. Yeah, I just I just personally don't usually. What do you do, Sean? Well, ha- have you actually like sat down and built a project with TDD? Yeah, in .NET days, yeah, not in PHP, but in I feel like I don't know. I feel like I may be doing TDD wrong in PHP because like I end up with weird errors. Like, say I try to do TDD on well, I guess I can't do like true TDD. I feel like sometimes because I get weird PHP errors. So like if certain certain things don't exist or whatever yet, then I get weird errors. But I guess you just have to define like my interfaces first and put everything on an interface. And I don't know. I, I used to do it on .NET a lot more mainly because we um, our whole team did it, so it's kind of like a group uh, culture type thing. Yeah. But peer pressure. Yeah, peer pressure. <laughs> Cold yeah, mentality. I, have, I haven't done it in PHP really. Um, I don't know. Um, so I've, I've put a lot of effort into TDD because I, at some point in time, decided this is just a really cool thing that I want to get, get grasp on. I didn't feel like, you know, I'd, I'd really be happy until I at least figured it out. So, um, we started approaching it with, uh, Ruby and we did some with PHP. And, um, what I learned is that it works a little bit differently than what I expected. When you write something, you write your tests, then you write the code that makes it work. If you're getting an error, then you just keep writing code until the error passes. But the code you're writing isn't like the code that you're going to end up having in the end. The code that you're writing is just the code that will make the test pass. So it's like, it's almost like you're hacking first. So you, you hack mm-hmm. crap together to make it work. And then once it works, then you kind of go clean it up and then you hack it again and then you clean it up. And I really find that enjoyable. I, I find it like actively pleasant. It, it's, it's almost like, like liberating. Yeah. I find tests extremely helpful for 
and Laravel for regression testing or, and or refactoring, like Jeffrey mentioned, because we um, we get a pull request, and, of course, it's all hooked up to Travis CI, and we can see if there's a regression. I, it's saved our butt so many times um, having, you know, a good suite of tests. I think we're up to about 2,000 tests now, and it's really it's really been really helpful on regressions and stuff. Max, uh, do you do testing or, or TD or anything like that? No, I still have to see the light in the end of the tunnel, and I don't have the big pens, the big boy pens like Jeffrey Way says in his book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still like for all my projects, I have I have no testing. I'm not doing any testing for uh, the client projects and for much bigger things. Then yeah, then that would be the way to go. But I'm I'm not like I. I find just that it takes too much time for me to prototype my application, um, and my attention span sometimes is is not that long. So I'm just I just want to knock it out today, you know, and I'm done. <laughs> it's so. it's the weirdest thing. It's very difficult to make yourself do it. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm, Gosh, I'm always yes. I'm always curious about the people who are anti-testing. Like it, people are the problem with what DHH said is. A lot of people are going to take that to mean testing. You don't need to do it. Uh, and that's not what he's saying at all, at all. He's no. just saying maybe uh, TDD specifically isn't necessarily the only way to create a good application. But he's not saying you shouldn't be testing as much as you can. He's just saying what ratio do you do a test first? And yep. I think in some of his articles he said uh, something along the lines of like 70-30, 80-20 for him or, or maybe even less. I, I can't remember what he said. But – um. Yeah, see, the problem with this is, once again, it's like everyone's trying to figure out the right way to do it. We, we bring this up all the time on these podcasts because it's everyone wants to know what to do. This stuff is complicated enough. You don't always want to figure it out for yourself. You just want somebody to say, here's a good way to do it. Yeah. One less thing to think about. You know, we have enough things to worry about. But the truth is, it's like it kind of comes down to how you want to approach this. So my view with testing is, do I do I check to see if I have 100 percent code coverage? Never. It's just it just doesn't ever come up. The way I approach it is, would I feel more comfortable having written this test? And that's it. So if it's something where I don't make that mistake, it's not something I'm worried about at all, I will not write the test. But if it's like, will this help you sleep better at night knowing that you have this automated verification that it works? And if the answer is yes, then it seems like a no-brainer to write the test. I have a... I have a couple like I don't know observations from myself and, and how I implement tests. So uh, when I'm making a package nowadays, um, I'm aiming for like a minimum of 100% code coverage. <clears throat> and so you guys, you guys know how code coverage works. Yep. So what is, um, do you mean like how how the tools how, actually analyze exactly, the code? Or? Yes. Uh, I'm not sure. So I, I I only really know how how PHP Unit does it with Xdebug. And basically, when you run your tests, it will actually pay attention with Xdebug about what code is run and what code, for example, what code in your classes are never hit during the course mm, of your mm-hmm. tests. So literally, if you test only one class in isolation and reference no other dependencies, you could have a thousand classes that are untested, but PHP unit will say that you have 100% coverage because you covered every line in that one file that was loaded. Then again, if you load in a bunch more classes, like if you're not using auto-loading and you're just like doing a bunch of requires, it'll give you a different result. So basically, you can have 100% coverage by just hitting every single line, but that doesn't really mean that you're 100% covered because 
when you're testing, you're not just making sure that you hit every line. You're trying to cover all these edge cases and behavioral scenarios and um, just making sure it, it behaves correctly. So you might have to cover the same line. Like one line in a class might get covered 20 times over the course of your test for that class, whereas another might get covered once, for example, throwing an exception in a specific scenario. So aiming for a minimum of 100% code coverage means that you, you probably could write more tests, but at least, you know, you're kind of close to having more of those things covered. So I don't actually believe for a minute that my package code I'm testing for everything. I, I, I genuinely don't believe it. And, I, and I'm not really looking for infallibility. I'm more looking for can I sleep at night? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember the early days when Laravel didn't have any tests, you know, back in like the first version or two. Man, those were scary, dark times back then. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I mean, you think about it. Somebody submits a pull request, and if you don't have those tests to verify whether it works or not, you have no idea. So you just have to basically try everything out and think of every possible way this could break the code. And Nobody can do that. You know, that's a nightmare. So, yeah, especially for regression testing, like, I, I can't imagine how it would even be possible to maintain a project as big as Laravel without a very good test suite. Yeah, we definitely could now. Not at, not at this size. Or just the query builder. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, just, I mean, we couldn't maintain just one aspect of Laravel. Mm-hmm. Especially with Travis. It's so nice somebody submits a pull request and you immediately have an alert saying, hey, they broke the code. So <laughs> yeah, you can just amazing. ignore it for now. Oh, it's so nice. Travis is just fantastic. It's so easy to set up. And um, basically, if anybody who's listening who doesn't know what Travis is, it's just it. You when you push to your GitHub remote or I don't know, it, it, it's only GitHub, right? I don't know. I think it's only GitHub, but whatever. It's free for public projects. Uh, you pay like I think a hundred bucks or something, hundred twenty bucks, for access to your private repository. So if you're running a business on GitHub private, whatever. But it just spins up a virtual machine, t- t- takes your code from the repo and builds it and runs whatever scripts you tell it to. So like for a Laravel app, it'll run your migrations, your database seeds. Then it'll run basically any scripts you want. And as long as those scripts return with a exit code of zero, then it considers it a success. If it returns any kind of failure, then it's going to mark the build as failing and you'll get a notice and everything. So uh, it's a really great service. Um, but you can do all kinds of really cool stuff from inside of a Travis build. You can say, okay, run the, this PHP unit stuff and then send the code coverage details to coveralls. And so then coveralls will say, okay, what's your coverage like? So you get these sweet badges for your repository to say like, you know, you got 80% code coverage and your Travis build is passing. And so there's like this emergence of all these tools and all these badges. Do you guys care at all about those badges? I don't. A little bit. I wouldn't say I care much about them. I, there's this new tool called Scrutinizer that came out. Oh, I was just about to bring that up. Yeah, it came out, I don't know, a few days ago, I guess, or at least that's when I first saw it. And, um, <laughs> I ran Laravel through it and like we got a good, we got a good rating and stuff and a, a decent high number. Um, but I, I looked at some of the bugs and stuff and I wouldn't necessarily consider them, them bugs. bugs. Yeah, like a few of them were like dot block, dot block problems, you know, just because PHP is so dynamic and stuff, and um, a few of them were like, eh, I could kind of go either way, but yeah, I mean, it was okay. You know, I checked to make sure we weren't like a horrible rating, and as once I saw that we had a decent good rating, I think it was like high sevens, almost eight, then, then I was like, okay, good enough. <laughs> 
it's pretty impressive though some of the stuff like some of the messages it will give you are so readable it's almost like somebody actually looked over the code I, I was testing this out yesterday, and it was like, oh, my God, it looks like a human being actually wrote this. It doesn't feel like some kind of automated you know, error message that you're getting. It's, it's very readable. And, yeah, a lot of them, when I did it the other day, too, a lot of it's like, oh, this, this only accepts an array, but it looks like you could pass it a string. And it's like, no, it's just I accidentally set the doc block, the doc block wrong. But what's cool about that is it will, if you want it to, it will automatically submit a pull request to fix any of those little issues that it can do. Wow. So you can automate yeah. the, those fixes completely. That is the whole nuts. product is super impressive. Like, whoever built it, yeah, definitely kudos to them. Yeah. It I'm, I'm, makes me even that more curious to see what Code Climate's going to do. They've been advertising PHP support for a while now, and I don't know if it's in beta yet. I signed up, like, months ago, but I'm very excited to see what happens from that. Yeah, um, on this database package we talked about on the last podcast, I just slapped a whole bunch of badges in there. Like, I looked at somebody's repo and said, oh, those badges look kind of nice, so I just slapped them all in there. And then the Sensio Labs Insight badge, like, uh, Mitchell committed in the PHP Artisan command that he wrote for the for the package, and it, we went from, like, four stars platinum to one star, and so we're going looking through. It's like, what what is it complaining about? And it's really hard to, to really kind of care. It's, so suddenly it feels like, are we spending more effort just trying to support this badge i mean it doesn't it doesn't seem to offer any real value in this specific context so it reminds me of like seven years ago when when like valid css and valid back then xhtml was its thing you'd get these badges and i did it too everyone would paste those little badges into the footer to to let for some reason their viewers who know nothing about these technologies know that it's valid css and valid xhtml works it works in the browser yeah yeah Netscape Navigator. <laughs> like some random viewer of a blog is like, oh, that's very nice. Valid CSS. <laughs> I only browse sites. Yeah, I only browse sites with valid CSS. <laughs> what is this? Not valid CSS? For the CSS? discriminating surfer. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, back to the testing thing. Like, I don't... I don't blame anyone for being cautious about it because it, it's, it's overwhelming. I, I wrote about this a lot in my book. It's overwhelming. You have PHP unit, PHP spec, mockery, uh, prophecy, the hat, mink, code set. I mean, you can just keep going on and on. And people don't have the time for this, you know. It's, it's a very small subset of people who are interested enough to research these things. So I, I don't blame anyone for just not knowing where to start. And then even beyond these frameworks, you have all the different kinds of testing, like you have acceptance and functional and integration and unit and end to end. And then every single um, community has their own words to identify the exact same kind of testing, like like what um, the Rails community might call unit testing. Our community would call more of an integration test. So it's like, how could you possibly know if you're just reading some random blog how to go about doing this stuff when nobody agrees? Uh, oh, even now, I get frustrated thinking about it. It's just, it's very rough. It's taken me many years to get to the point where I feel comfortable writing tests and doing TDD, if that's what I want to do. But yeah, I don't blame people for having trouble with it. I feel like it's like a long-term pursuit. It's um, it's yeah, something it's that you career. just can't just decide to do. I so I'm gonna, I'm gonna test now, and then the next day you're like pulling your hair out because you don't know what you're doing. And I'm sorry, it's just going to take a while. We're talking about it like a take year a to get time. your feet, you know, really. It'll, it's, it'll pay off for sooner than that, far sooner. But 
and it will make you a, probably a better object-oriented designer. It just, I just think it will. Oh, my gosh, immensely better. Remember the uh, Code Igniter unit test class? <laughs> that was kind of ahead of its time, though, am I right? Like, for, I'm sorry, I the, don't remember that. You, did, are you being has anyone you really ever don't? tested a Code Igniter application? I'm not sure that ever actually got used. Dude, I <laughs> used that for sure. Like, when I first came to Code Igniter from uh, my previous job and stuff, like, I was like, sweet, unit testing. Of course, I had, like, no mocking or anything, which is, like, totally necessary for unit testing. But, um, mm. yeah, that, I, now that I think about it, like, it's kind of crazy because unit testing was not, like, a hot topic in those circles, but they had a unit testing class. It's kind of interesting. I think we're sometimes unfair to Code Igniter. Like, it, I think we're all doing it in good fun, but we forget, like, back then, Code Igniter was awesome. You know, it, it, it's sort of like how we look back on Internet Explorer 5. It's like complete yeah. garbage by today's standards, but people forget, like, when IE5 came out, that was a significantly better browser than anything else on the market at the time. But it's like we look back at it now, and it's complete garbage, but you have to think about the time. Code Igniter was good for the yeah. time. We just make fun of it now whenever we can. <laughs> I don't really try to make fun of it as much as, like, I look back at old pictures of myself as a kid, and it's like, I can't believe I wore that. And it's like, I didn't, I didn't like, I'm not trying to make fun of myself, but it was just a different time, you know? Man, that is so true. Like, we, I look at some of these photos of myself as a kid, and it's like, who allowed you to wear this, you know? And we thought we looked good back then. <sighs> <laughs> Uh, I didn't think any such thing, for the record. I was decked out in Kmart plastic print shirts and who knows what. So no, nobody thought that we looked uh, looked that I looked good at the time. You mean those T-shirts with like the really thick plastic fronts? That yeah, like a picture of an electric guitar and lightning bolts. <laughs> Some LA gear, light up shoes. <laughs> that sounds about right. Anyhow, if anyone's listening to this and you're not doing testing, what I would recommend is is try to write some kind of acceptance test. That's an easy way to do this. You can use Codeception for it, which is probably your easiest choice, or if you want to dig into the hat. But that gives you a much easier way where you're not, ha you're not having to worry about, like, oh, is this class testable? You're just saying, here's what I want to do. And you could call that a feature. So you could say, like, um, I don't know. I, I, I Maybe it's just something as simple as, like, you want to sign in to your application. Well, you could write a little feature that where you just write it exactly the way anyone would say it, and then you can handle a couple of tests to make that work. That's a really good entry point to this stuff. And then you can start digging in a little bit further, uh, doing more integration style testing, more unit testing, but start on the outside in just like a human would. And if you want to leverage like your own psychology, when you screw something really big up and you feel awful and everybody hates you, you might consider writing a test to make sure that that doesn't get screwed, uh, screwed up again. So I think that always like, kind of worked for me because <clears throat> if if I'm working on something that's just too complicated for me, too complicated for me to really wrap my head around it entirely, then I have no choice but to either resign to it failing and then fixing it as it fails or write a bunch of tests to to kind of force it to fail and then figure it out. Definitely. Are, are any of you guys using PHP spec at all? I'm not, but I'm very seriously like kind of looking at it. Uh, since you brought it up, can you kind of tell the, the visitors kind of how PHP spec differs from something like PHP unit? Yeah. Um, it's just, uh, 
I'm probably not the best person to say this, but it's just a different approach to writing your tests. So with PHP unit, obviously, you use more of like the, the X unit style where you say uh, assert equals four, two plus two, you know, just your traditional unit style testing. With PHP spec, you're more it's more about design than testing. So it's more of like if you wanted to do test driven design, PHP spec is really good for that. So you describe what your object should do. So many times I'll look at people's um, tests with PHP unit and it'll just say like for the, the, the test method name, it'll say test and then the name of the method. And that's it. So you don't exactly know, all right, what does this do? Well, you're just making sure that the method does what it what it says. And this is a dead ringer that people are writing the tests after the production code, which is fine if you want to do that. But you're not you're not helping your future self or you're not helping anyone who comes to this project that knows nothing about your code base. They just know that you have some test that verifies that whatever it does, it does well. But with PHP spec, you can you can focus a little bit more on the behavior. What does it do? So when you write these names, you know, you're actually writing it like a sentence. What should this object do? And then you write it down uh, and then you can then you can um, create any mocks you want to automatically, which is pretty cool. Like, for example, with with mockery, if you want to mock something, you use the mockery API and then you you insert that into your class like dependency injection. But you insert a, a mock with PHP spec. It's sort of like how. Um, you know, with Laravel, with, with controllers, it will use automatic resolution to uh, inject your dependencies into your controller. PHP spec is very similar to that. So you just type in the name of the object that you want to mock as an argument of the method, and PHP spec will just automatically give you that. So uh, it, it just makes for much cleaner code, in my opinion. Yeah, the spec the spec uh, tools, the, the various unit testing tools that follow that kind of uh, approach seem to be really in style with a lot of, uh, I don't know, the people that, the I guess you'd call them thought leaders if you want to sound all TEDx about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, like, honestly, see, what's hard, though, is PHP spec isn't for everything. So people get really, like, th there are so many support threads everywhere from Laracast to I've seen some on uh, Laravel IO to the PHP spec GitHub page where people are trying to figure out how can I use PHP spec with Laravel. And and what this amounts to is they're trying to test facades and PHP spec isn't making that easy. And that's what's really cool about the um, the framework is it kind of nudges you, I don't want to say the right direction because in the last podcast I said there was no right. Okay, let's just say it, it tries to help you uh, write better code. So anything that, that you are having trouble doing with PHP spec might signal a code smell. So in this case, if you're trying to test a class that references a class in your domain that references a facade, it's going to make that a little difficult. So instead, you can change your your um, your production code to maybe inject the underlying class, and you can do that in Laravel now. So there's just lots of little things that PHP spec will will nudge you in the right direction. So it says just it's like primarily a design tool. It helps you design better code. Whew. I feel like I'm a Laracast. <laughs> like, like this one's for free. No, if you're on Laracast, like you guys should see when I record a video at Laracast, there's like 500 edit points. Because <laughs> nobody can talk about this stuff well. You know, it takes me sometimes like 10 tries to get a sentence right. But then I'll, I'll just edit out all the mistakes. One of these days I will just do a video but not edit anything out. And you can see how bad they turn out. 
when it's <laughs> just me. A video on how to edit videos. That would be really <laughs> helpful for me. So I would I wouldn't have to do any of these screencasts in one take anymore and have to do it like twenty times. <laughs> It is fun. Like, I do love watching screencasts because everyone has their own like style of doing things. For example, Taylor, when I watch your videos, I think every single video you do says, hi, I'm Taylor Outwell, back with another Laravel screencast. <laughs> yeah, my or, wife says that sometimes around the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or what is the other one? There's one you do. Um, oh, yeah, whenever you, you hit a route, you're like, all right, I'll hit that guy. Everything is a guy. <laughs> And I have a bunch of my own that I do. It's fun. Like he also talks about spinning, spinning through iterators. <laughs> spinning. So when is Laracas open for everybody to submit a video? Uh, I don't. Just I don't, kidding. I don't know if that'll happen. I don't know. I, I would love to have. If I ever like did guests. anything like that, yeah. Like what I would prefer to do. Um, what is the site? I'm I'm already drawing a blank because I'm on a podcast. The um. He did Ruby stuff, and then he got bought out by Pluralsight. It's the mm. the great Ruby. Mm. What is Railscast? The no, the other one. Oh, Why am I drawing a blank? Jeffrey, um, uh, of course I'm drawing a blank. Peep code. Peep okay. code. Okay. Well, now yeah, I have yeah. no idea what I was saying. What was I talking about? Peep code and uh, so rating other people's content or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He, he does this play-by-play thing where he'll meet somebody probably at a conference, and they will just get a hotel room, and they will sit down and work on a project. And yeah, fire it up couple, Ember. Yeah, yeah, firing up Ember, just like that. And I learned so much from those because they're way less about actually finishing the, the task that is assigned, and it's more just watching your workflow. And I don't know about you guys, but like that's where I learned so oh, much man. is just what how do they go about their editor? If they if they want to if they want to run some command, how do they do it? Did they pop open, for example, in like PHP Storm the little command prompt, or did they switch to the terminal? Do they have some kind of shortcut? That's where I really learned the most. So mm, I yeah. might think about doing something like that for Laracast, where I give people it would, it would be perfect for conferences. Like if I could pay Taylor some nice amount of money just to hang out with me for an hour and code. <laughs> it would take it, that much for Taylor to hang out with somebody. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but, but you get the basic idea. That would be the only thing I would do. Otherwise, I really like the idea of, of kind of owning Laracasts. Mm-hmm. I had that big problem where, where I used to work at, at Tuts Plus where we had so much content, but it was coming from, from so many different people and so many different backgrounds. So you would have one course... Um, that might suggest one technique, and the other one would say, oh, that's a bad way to go about it. And that's just because naturally developers disagree on this stuff. But mm-hmm. as as somebody trying to learn, that's very difficult. Yeah, you don't when have you can say, well, he voice. just told me not to do that, and you are. Yeah, so with yeah. Laracast, I like, even if I'm not right all the time, I like that you have a very specific viewpoint that you're learning from. Consistency. Yeah. When I started um, making screencasts, basically when I started doing any co- community contribution at all, I was making <clears throat> Code Igniter screencasts, and I didn't think that anybody had ever, like, watched them, so I just belted them out like, one take. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I started getting a lot of people talking to me about them, and eventually those were the way I was able to start my business because people would come to me and say, hey, I like the way you do things. Will you build this for me? I'm like, okay, cool. And so now even I mostly just do the recordings in one take. Uh, last time I was at Laracon, somebody came up to me and said, you know, I, I, you know, like that you're talking about like Laravel and these screencasts and everything, but it's, I, I much more appreciate the, 
the things that you're not directly talking about, you know, the, the things where you're just rambling off the top of your head about something or another, or, uh, you know, to see, like you said, what you're doing with your editor. And that really kind of stuck with me. So I, now I try to make sure that the videos I record are as real as possible, because if I design a script, then that's me making something. And I think I probably have a little bit more to offer than just what I would design myself. So I'm just, I'm not going to handicap myself in that way and just draw a line about, you know, what my videos are going to be about and just try to keep it as natural as possible. Oh yeah. I would never do a script. I, I wasn't suggesting that when I, when I talk about editing my own videos, it's more like you want to say something, but you don't know the, the perfect way to say it. So I'm not reading off of a script. It just means it might take me three or four times to, to get out what I'm trying to say. But yeah, the problem with scripts are you already know what you're going to say before you start. So there's no room for, for quick asides. Those little like, oh, by the way, this is kind of cool. Did you know about this? That's where you can really learn some stuff. Yeah. Okay. So that's a lot about testing and stuff, huh? <laughs> for sure. So do you guys want to talk about suffixing your classes uh, sub- and different types of uh, types, I guess? Uh, like, for example, uh, PSR2 uh, from the FIG, they say to suffix every single interface with the word interface and suffix every single trait with the word trait. I, I know, Taylor, that you had some strong opinions on this. Um, did you want to go first or maybe uh, hear from Max? Sure. Max can go ahead. Go for it. Um, I'm not doing this yet. <laughs> I yeah. You I like have... it, though? I mean, is, is it something that... Yeah, that's something that I'll use, yeah, um, just to make it standard clear you know um but uh i believe taylor's viewpoint is he just doesn't want to get yelled at by the the psr police (laughs) (laughs) yeah every Uh, time it comes up taylor's like oh i just don't want to get yelled at i do i don't like it in the code i don't like how it reads like i would rather say for example with cashier user class user and then use billable like that to me that just is more um it just sounds better but I do kind of like how I can type interface into like Sublime or trait into Sublime and I get all of the traits and stuff, which I wouldn't necessarily get if the name wasn't in the class or in the interface or trait. <clears throat> so I, I I don't know. I don't like it in the code at all. Like I think that sounds stupid, really stupid to say like implements whatever foo interface when I would just say like, for example, with PHP itself, they just do implements countable or implements array. It really should be array accessible, not array access, which also sounds stupid. But, um, yeah, I don't like it in the code, but I do like it in terms of um, sublime text, which I shouldn't be using anyway. Sublime is great. Maybe if you uh, had different tools that would give you those things back. <laughs> That's okay, Taylor. I'm also... I'm on Sublime Text right now as well. I, I tried PHP Storm. Also, you know, just switching between the two. So I'm on the same boat. Sublime is great. A year and a half ago, I was saying it was the best editor ever. So it, it's incredibly good. Either one works. It just kind of comes down to, I think, not to get into this again, but it just comes down to, I think, your your sensibilities, what you yeah. feel comfortable What you want using. for the moment. It's not like people have been separated between, like, an IDE and something minimal like Sublime and Vim forever. I mean, this debate just never stops. Yep. And both sides are right. Yeah, it's religious debates. But you are correct, Jeffrey, in that I do do it just so that, um, what's their name? PHP Fig won't get mad. Not that I care, but just so they won't get mad. Um, Because, yeah, we do follow PSR1, and um, we do 
follow PSR Zero. We don't actually follow all of PSR Two, so I'm I guess I'm kind of inconsistent in that way. But um, you know, yeah, I do try to stick to it as much as I can. I guess just to kind of play nice. Jeffrey, do you have an opinion on it? You know who writes a lot of great stuff on this is um, Matthias <laughs> yeah, Ferris. I bring him up a lot. I what is his name? Um, I'm sorry. Um, I know it as Matthias Ferris, but I am probably wrong. No, I'm probably wrong. I have We're a habit all of saying everything wrong. wrong. This is the problem when I work at home is I don't actually speak to these actual people, so I just guess how their names are pronounced. Anyways, I, I've learned so much from him. He has a lot of a lot of good ideas on this, and he has an article called Sensible Interfaces. Just give it a Google, and it'll make you, like, if you are a hardcore always suffix interface, just give it a read and, and maybe just take a step back and, and think for a minute. Honestly, from my point of view, I haven't made up my mind yet. I have done both. Yeah. Uh, Uncle Bob, I, go ahead. Sorry, Uncle ahead. Bob's been Uncle Bob's been talking about this in .NET for like ten years or whatever. Where in .NET, everyone prefixes everything with like I, so like I foo class user implements I billable or whatever. And he was talking about you should drop the I, you know, with any new suffixes or whatever. And for the same reason, like because he was always coding to interfaces or whatever, like the interface was almost the most important part of it all. So. He was like, you might as well um, not suffix it at all and make that kind of like the main focus, as he said, of interfaces or contracts or whatever. It's kind of an old discussion, really. Yeah, that's really kind of where I stand on it. If if you're going to suffix something, then suffix your concretions. <laughs> um, it's it's to me it's so. Let's say I have an interface. So give me a good a good example, real quick. Like because I, I all I can think of is command bus off the top of my head. Well, okay. like there's uh, there's traversable. Okay, so I'm going to go with the command bus thing. So let's say <laughs> I want to inject a command bus into one of my controllers. And so you can see this on the, the next version branch on the Laravel IO code base. Um, I inject command bus, and then I just do dollar sign bus. Command bus is actually an interface, and I have multiple command buses in the code base. So th the important thing is I, what I want is I want a command bus. And I don't care what I'm getting. It just really doesn't matter at that point. The code, in my opinion, doesn't care. Um, what I don't want is a command bus interface. So a command bus interface isn't even instantiatable. Uh, instantiable? Uh, either way, it, it to me, it doesn't make sense to say that dollar sign bus is going to be an interface. It, it's, it's almost like semantically wrong in my head to say mm -hmm. that this is what you're expecting. But you're expecting a... a abstract concept. You're expecting a command bus, and so when I inject it, yes, I'm injecting, and, and there's also another part of this where you have the default implementation problem, uh, which is, if okay, so if your interface is command bus, then what's your command bus called? Well, the, the reality is, yeah, naming things is, is hard, and you have to actually kind of think about it. So, it, you know, I used to have just a normal command bus class, and what it would do is it accepts a command, and it pairs it with a handler. So the command comes in, it gets paired with the handler, and then the command bus is out of the picture. So I decided to call it the execution command bus because its job is to execute the command, essentially. And then I have another command bus called the validation command bus, and it just decorates the execution command bus. And then I slap it into that, that same, uh, you know, I just bind it to the IOC container so that when it injects, I get the, the full stack. And... You know, in some of my controllers, I might want that, or I might want to change the implementation at runtime. I, I just, I just still, I just want a command bus. <laughs> I don't want a command bus interface. I just think yeah. it gets in the way. It, it almost like 
to me, relegates the concept of interface to like a second class citizen. Where, like, I guess, Uncle Bob, who, who's been a, like a, uh, influential to me, uh, I guess my thought is interfaces are kind of super effing important in object oriented design. So I think of interfaces as a little bit more front and center, I guess. It's true. You do see a lot of people try to use class names like default and then whatever the, the interface is called. And that's always a little weird. Like, I yeah, guess an easy way to. That. Yeah, I definitely don't either. I guess an easy way to think is what makes this implementation different from that implementation? And then whatever you come up with, that should probably be the the class name. Naming is hard. <laughs> That's a hard thing to grasp. Like naming is hard. I think when you're you're younger, you're like, wait, what do you mean naming is hard? But it's like you don't even know enough to realize how hard it is just yet. You have to get to the point where you like I think if I can give Taylor a compliment, you do this better than just about everybody. That's why Laravel's so nice. The best. It's, it's just like exactly what you would expect is how the API looks. And what I think people don't realize is that's weirdly very, very difficult to do. Or it's just a gift you have. But I think for most people, it's incredibly <laughs> difficult. Um, you know, that's the whole story time. behind that's the whole story behind facades or the name facades. You know, for those who don't know, a few weeks ago, there was a huge controversy that we should rename facades to static surrogates or something like that because they're not really implementing the facade pattern. But that's exactly why they're called facades is because I try to name things or when I was writing Laravel, I try to think of very plain English names to describe what something is doing. And I'm not always necessarily, uh, I don't always have my quote programmer hat on. So like, um, sometimes I will come up with very kind of prosy sounding names that might not always mesh well with computer science names. And so that's where the facades came from is because they kind of are a facade in the English, in the, in the sense of the word, like the English dictionary sense of the word, but they're not a facade in the kind of gang of four design pattern sense of the word. So they but steal yeah. the word. So if you now try to use it any other way, <laughs> suddenly you're stealing from them. That's how that turns right. out. Yeah. I'm, yeah, but I do try to name things with a very um, prosy kind of expressive syntax. Um, I think the the naming problem actually is is a little bit deeper than that. To me, it's like you're making a, a nice API to work with, and I think you know you have a passion for that. It's like every time you talk about these things, you're like, oh, you know, I start with the API, or I just want the API to be really nice, and I think that makes you know a lot of sense and kind of makes Laravel what it is. Um, but I think the the issue with naming kind of comes back to the the complexity of of exactly what we're doing. So, if, if you're thinking about code in a very procedural way, then you know from top to bottom you're trying to just get these bits arranged into these bits, and that's basically it. But when you're doing something a little bit more, uh, I don't know, philosophical, something like you know object oriented design, all of a sudden you have all these little um, units that have these specific jobs and, and what you originally may have thought was a good name maybe doesn't fit it at all anymore. Um, it, you know what I'm saying about this? Am I just kind of rambling in nowhere? No, I get what you mean. Naming stuff is really hard and especially naming stuff that's going to be used for a long time, like things hopefully in Laravel. Um, you know, you have to stick with those names for a long time. So it is kind of daunting. Yeah, it's to not like you can names. do a switcheroo six months later. You have to yeah. stick with it. I think it's tough because for whatever reason, maybe our instinct is not to make things more simple. And that's why, like, 
when you see method names, they're very short. We we try to shorten or abbreviate even words. And it's like, well, well, why are you doing that? And it's because, oh, it's obvious, but it may not be obvious a year from now. So I've started to get to a point where, like, even if my method name is too long, that is preferable to some method name where I don't exactly know what it does. Mm-hmm. So even if that means, like, um, one thing I do a lot is, let's say you have some kind of conditional, and it's like, if... And then you have some kind of conditional. I don't know. Maybe you're like reading some properties array to see if a field exists. It doesn't matter. But like rather than putting that all inside the the conditional, I would extract that to a method and then just name it exactly what that that does. And that way, a year from now, when you come back, you're not having to take even if it only takes five seconds to figure it out. You're not having to think, all right, what exactly is that doing again? No, you just know exactly what it does because the method name says that. Extract till you drop, baby. Extract till you drop. The funny thing is, uh, if you think that the names of your functions or, or classes are long, um, I suggest you just look at Objective-C documentation. Where Objective-C they have, like, scares yeah. me to death. Go ahead. Yeah, it's like 200 character names, you know, for things. But they explain exactly what they're doing. <laughs> so have you done much work in that area? <clears throat> uh, quite a while ago, probably a Couple years ago, yeah, I made a few like games. It? Um, no, it was it was not as <laughs> as easy as web development because it has a lot of uh, all kinds of you know memory management and all all that kind of stuff. Um, at that time, probably like right now, it's probably a lot better to get into. Mm-hmm. But I should um, probably learn it. It scares me. Like um, when I was working at Tuts, I, I hired this guy to do a course on Objective C. Actually, the uh, Brian, the guy who creates CodeKit. Mm-hmm. I was working with him, and he did, like, a killer job. But I was going through the videos, and the code was just so, like, foreign to me. I, I couldn't <laughs> get my brain around it, which probably means that's exactly why I should learn it. But yeah. still, like, it, it's very intimidating to me. Same here. Uncle Bob, DHH. I'd like to see those two in a ring match. <laughs> yeah, that'd be really interesting. Cage match. Uncle Bob versus DHH. <laughs> That'd be super interesting. I would definitely pay to see that. Uncle Bob comes in dressed up with, like, a cape and stuff. <laughs> Uncle Bob's kind of like Ric Flair, you know? Have you um, seen, like, his video series, his cleancoders.com video series, Taylor? Yeah, a little bit. So there's, like, good. 25 episodes now. My and wife makes fun of them so much. I don't know how you couldn't. They, like, get progressively <laughs> crazy. Like, at about tw- episode 12 or 13, it just starts going, like, out the window. Like, he's smoking <laughs> his pipe, and there's explosions coming out of it. And, like, he rides a bomb pop popsicle through space. And oh I, I just don't even know what I'm watching anymore. And, <laughs> you know, I really think that he breaks things down in a really good way. Like, for he, he spends a full hour talking about single responsibility principle, for example. And he talks about it. He gives a lot of code examples. And he gives you enough information to be able to gather the concept together. Um, but it's also sometimes a little bit awkward and weird. Like, when he has, like, his, um, you know... The his kids and his the family, yeah, and they're all, like, swinging around lightsabers. I'm like, I am so not able to pay attention while people are swinging lightsabers and hitting each other and stuff. It's just, some of it's a little weird, but thankfully, he, he mostly keeps it kind of low. low it's dip. pretty good stuff. It's an acquired taste. That's what I would say about it. Like <laughs> A lot of people, if you want to learn about the single responsibility principle, that's a great place to go. But also, expect the first 45 minutes to be some story that you have no idea how that relates to code or how it ties into this. And he usually does in the end, but 
you'll spend a half an hour listening to some some story related to to NASA or something where you're like, wait a minute, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> I love it. But it, it's all good in the end, you know? I love the and, science lessons. Yeah, I, I, I do too, I but it's required. I had a professor like that in college that was like always talking about when he used to train on T-38 fighter aircraft. And he was like this awesome, smart professor, but like there was always like a T thirty eight lesson in there. In, in there somewhere. <laughs> hey man, go with what you know. Yeah. Okay, so let's see here. Yeah, so I have a question for you. I have this like personal idea about this, but I want to give you guys all a chance to talk before I kind of rant on it for a second. But I was wondering what you think about developers um, using their mental focus at work, like for example over like a nine to five job or, you know, like an eight hour day. And then the ramifications that that has on their life. Um, do you guys have any strong opinions on this? I do. Do you guys ever notice, like, I don't know. I think it depends on how you work. But sometimes when I have a long day, I am so mentally drained. I think this job is more mentally draining than most jobs to the point where when I do get done and I, I, I'm with my family, it's like I can't. I have trouble getting out of that that coding zone where I'm I'm exhausted. But if if I'm still working on something, I can't get that out of my head. You got I guess it's kind of like a, this weird addictive quality. I don't know how to how to describe it. Do you guys know what I'm talking about at all? One no. thing for me, let me see if this is the same thing you're talking about, where like it used to be I'd get off work. And like if I go to Subway or something like I'm still like in this hyper OCD attention to detail mode and so like they'll ask me a question like a normal human question and in my head I'm thinking wow that made no sense like <laughs> like they'll say something like do you want uh, do you want chips with that and I'll be like with what you know what I mean like in my head I'm like you're not being specific and it's just like this over attention to detail that takes me like 30 minutes to kind of wind down and kind of get back to normal like vague human conversation you know because you're dealing with like very precise code all day, it does kind of work your I mind over the long term, somewhere. right? Like, yeah, like it never stops. I guess that's what I was trying to say. It never stops. Even when you go to bed, you're probably on some level still thinking about it, or things just kind of making their way through your head. That's that's hard. I I, I sometimes envy the people who have those jobs where once they're done at five o'clock, that's it. They will not space. think about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they won't think about it again until the next morning. And I think there is value in that. So I think uh, I, it would drive me nuts at the same time, but there's value in that. I think we can also kind of argue causation versus uh, correlation, right? So it's more, it's, you can argue, and I think that you could probably find information uh, studies that suggest this as well, that people of a certain uh, mental temperament are more likely to have a more, uh, a job where Engineering is involved, right? So actually, I, I actually have heard of a stat, and you can go and look this up because I feel really confident because my my old lady told it to me, and she wouldn't tell me something that wasn't backed up by science, being a researcher herself. But um, <clears throat> she said that there is a very specific um, probability that the child of a researcher will will be somewhere like autism spectrum, or uh, not a researcher, uh, engineer. The child of an engineer will be somewhere autism spectrum. So like, you know, not like, unable to, to handle, not like, you know, necessarily awkward in social situations or anything like that necessarily, just the way that the mind, their mind works is, um, you know, of a specific flavor. So I, I think that uh, people who end up to be engineers end up having, uh, of course, there's all types of people. And some people get into programming, a lot of people get into programming who actually don't even care, and life just blew them that way. 
But uh, I don't know. I, I can imagine that people of a certain mental temperament kind of flock, I guess, to this sort of thing. That's interesting. You mentioned uh, imposter syndrome in the last podcast. Do you guys feel like you have that? Every day of my life. Taylor, what about you? Uh, yeah, I'm not a legitimate programmer for sure. Like I, I, I truly believe like I'm not a real programmer. And let me what I, let me explain that. I mean like the people who build, um, the people who make PHP Storm, or the people who like make Nginx or PHP <laughs> itself. Like those are real programmers. You know what I mean? Like I'm kind of just like piggybacking on their real work and building like these these kind of cute little tools to help us do stuff. But yeah, yes. I don't feel like a real programmer in that tools. way. That should be the name of this podcast. Cute little tools. So I know exactly quaint. what you mean. Like I'll, yeah. I'll, I know this isn't totally related, but I'll go watch a new Pixar movie or something. And it's so incredible that they made that happen. And then yeah. on our end, like I'm excited when, when rounded corners came to CSS, you know, that <laughs> it's like this massive gap between capabilities. Yeah. Yeah, but, but you know it, what? there's I, different types of programming. You know, there's there's that kind of systems programming, and there, but there's also you know business applications programming, which I don't think it's I don't think it's um, it's just kind of can be a different skill set sometimes too. You know, like uh, figuring out and having insight into finding um, viable business ideas or how to structure something like that is a different skill set entirely, and not necessarily like a lesser skill set. I would say it's just different. I do game programming on the side, and that to me feels more like real programming because I write something, I just make a small tweak, and then I go and interact with it, and and suddenly I feel like I have something moving and alive in my hands. Whereas uh, when I'm doing, I'm I'm basically in my regular job just encoding business logic, if that makes sense. And I I think it's really great, and I think it's fun, and I I, I enjoy researching and and learning about how to do it, uh, how to organize my app, and all those things, but. I don't know. There's something about being able to directly interact with my game projects that makes me feel very differently about programming. I think in my head, I tend to view any programmer that like heavily uses math as our quote real programmer, and the rest of us are like kind of fake programmers. <laughs> Which is funny because I happen to know a lot of people who use math heavily who are awful programmers, but it's just part of their job. Yeah. Like statist yeah. statisticians and whatnot, they get the math. They they only have to make this this simulation run once, so they don't know anything about code and managing it and the life of a software engineer. Mm. I'm always curious if like basically everyone I talk to says they do have imposter syndrome, but I wonder if that's true. I wonder if like it's more connected to your personality type, and is it just maybe that the type of person who would flock to this part of the industry is more inclined to have that or or is it because this stuff is so hard i don't know we're also um, on a podcast that's going to be listened to like five thousand people so if you're the kind of person who's sticking their neck out how does that affect that <laughs> yeah. exactly. but I, I, there are there are people who would say i don't have it at all um i don't feel like i, I have imposter syndrome within php like i feel i feel comfortable with my php skills but i do feel like in the wider programming world I would be average at best. You know what I mean? Like in terms of real programming, average to below average probably. I just, I mean, I think I'm good at PHP. I don't know that I would be necessarily special outside of that. 
I, it's I hard think that that counts because, because that's kind of your domain, right? Um, so, like, it, it makes sense that in your domain you feel comfortable because this is where you put a lot of effort and time, and it's a complicated domain so that, you know, thinking about something that you don't have much of experience with, it makes sense that you wouldn't be as skilled or as comfortable. So I, I think that that really definitely counts. You know, it, it it's, a, it's probably a factor in imposter syndrome in general, just having the awareness of all the things you don't know. And then you you kind of just like, you do your own little thing and you're doing all right and you're doing a pretty good job, but you, there's still just so much you can't know. Right. I have a little bit of input on that too. Um, I guess I see it as, you know, just using the tools that are existing out there, you know, to get where you want to be. So, um, so the main thing for me is just to, to use this programming or, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be just this language. It can be any other programming language just to, to make what I want to make. So, but that's probably a little bit different for me than for other people because uh, I'm mainly working for myself at this point. You can still classify it, though. Like, do you feel like other people are passing you by? Do you feel like you can't keep up with everyone else? And no, my instinct no. is, yeah. okay, well, then you don't have it because I very much do have that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think plenty of people do this this feeling like, Everyone else is ahead of you. They they know something that you don't know. And I think you either have that feeling or you don't. Yeah. And it doesn't make you right or wrong. It's just whether you know, that's your inclination. Where I did have that was on front end until very recently. Like, I felt very insecure about my front end capabilities and felt, like, very one-sided as a developer in the sense that I could only do back end.net or PHP. And I, did, I couldn't do anything else. And I felt like... <clears throat> I don't know. I didn't feel good about that just from I didn't want to get left behind too far for too many years. And so, like, I, I have this project at work and on the side, which I'll talk about at Laracon, where I had to use a lot of front end stuff like Angular. And I actually had to learn um, how to do bootstrap and less and all that. And that was really good for me to not um, or to get into those areas where I haven't been. And it really kind of boosted my confidence, I guess, as kind of a more complete developer. So, um, yeah, I would definitely recommend, you know, if you feel that way, just kind of tinkering around with some idea and, and not giving up because it's really nice to kind of have that feeling of, of um, kind of catching up, so to speak, I guess. Mm-hmm. Good advice. If it's okay with you guys, can I, can I go back to kind of the eight hour workday thing real quick? Yep, yeah, let's do it. So, um, I worked, so I've been in whatever this career path for like 16 years or something. Um, and I worked, you know, for startups where I was working 12, 14 hour days where I actually lived in the guy's house who was running the startup. So I, I just moved from another town into his house and I lived there and worked there and his mom would bring us food. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we would just be working all the time. And, and so that was cool and that was fine for the time for me. Um, but so I'm 32. I have two kids. My wife is, um, you know, at the university and basically I, I can't really even anymore get more than like five hours of good client billable time in a day because when I do, I feel like the, the rest of my world kind of falls apart. And so, kind of in observing this in myself, I started really thinking about 
what what it takes out of us to do what we do and it's it's a lot of on time it's a lot of focus time it's it's um i i really believe there's like a limited amount of chemicals like certain chemicals in your brain or vice versa the more you work the more your brain's flooded with these chemicals that just like drag you down and uh keep you from being able to think clearly and i think a lot of developers who work full time end up uh solving that problem on their own through um you know reddit imager um you know these distractions mm-hmm. but i think that you know maybe if you work an 8 hour day or like work 9 to 5 and you come home like what what's your home life like um are you know at, at work all the time you're you're coming up with new ideas you're solving problems is, is your home life also coming up with new ideas and solving problems are are you maybe not considering um making an improvement to your home or or tweaking something out or even just doing the kind of housework that would make your home a, a better place to live for you to increase your quality of life is there a possibility that those things are seriously negatively affected by working so long and, and just basically trading your your energy on a day-to-day basis for money. So I wonder if if we spend so much of our time um trading trading that ability of ourselves for cash that we ended up even just even on our day off just recharging uh, we end up at like a lower potential and then maybe we're at our highest potential at the end of the weekend. So that we are, we're back and we go back into the grind again. And, and this is definitely like a, one of those first world problems where if you're suffering, you're not having enough food or something that, well, these are the, exactly the kind of problems you'd love to have. But I'm just thinking that if you have kids, for, for example, and you go home, is it hard for you to interact with your kids? Do you find, do you find that like on a Sunday you have really great interactions and you're just so thankful for your family, but then maybe on other days, you, you know, you're maybe more frustrated or have more difficulties is, does anybody here have experience with that kind of like negative impact on their, their personal lives? Yeah, I can kind of relate to that where, so when I, right when I get off work, usually like I have to go like lay down for about 15 minutes and just kind of chill for a second and decompress. And then, then it's easier for me, I think, to kind of come out and, and have normal human interactions, so to speak. But yeah, sometimes I do find myself like even on downtime, contemplating um, different programming things or thinking about stuff. So it is kind of hard. I can relate to I can relate. Yeah, to you that. can't turn it off. That's the hardest thing. It's very difficult to turn it off, even if you want to. Sometimes I'll finish up. Maybe even I, I, I decide I'm going to finish up early. I'll be done for the day. And before I knew know it, two hours later, I'm, I'm back on it doing something. It's For me, it's this weird addiction where I can't turn it off. And, like, I don't I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I'll, if I'm working on some project and I finish for the day and, for example, the tests still haven't turned green, I can't relax knowing yeah. that. So I will go back and it's worth it to me to spend an extra two hours if when that two hours is done, I can actually relax and not think about it. But until then, it will just stay, especially if I'm going out to dinner with my wife or something. Of course, like she has she has very specific rules that I that I have to follow. So I, I can't just make her wait and I'd be a terrible person to do that. But it doesn't change the fact that I'm still thinking about it when I should be watching a movie at a movie theater or something. Yeah, I'll be sitting on my couch, like, watching a movie, and I keep popping my laptop open thinking, oh, I want to refactor this thing in my package. And and I close it again because I am not mentally capable of doing a good job because I'm just – 
I just spent myself on, you know, this thing all day and then pop into part of the evening. So I just have to, I just keep opening my laptop like a compulsion, like, oh, what's over here? <laughs> yeah, it's an, it's an addiction. I, have you guys ever found yourself at two in the morning in bed on your laptop working? And the answer should be no, but I'm. We literally do not take our laptops to bed. It's it's kind of like a thing we just don't don't allow. Well, that's good, Taylor. One one thing. No, I've never actually had. What am I like the only loser who works in bed? (laughs) No, no. no, Edit all of this out. I've done that before. Don't know. One thing people don't know about me though is before I started Laravel, shortly before I started Laravel, I was like a total luddite. I did not have home internet. I did not have a cell phone. Not a, not a smartphone, not a regular phone, no cell phone at all. And no, uh, I had no computer at home. I had nothing. And I was like this kind of, um, I was like really into like minimalism and stuff, like overly obsessed with it and like having nothing. Like I wanted to get rid of our furniture. Like it was weird. And then when I started Laravel and I got into programming, um, I kind of like, I don't know, just something shifted in my brain, I guess, where I didn't, I didn't care about that stuff as much anymore. And so obviously I had to buy a laptop and I got like the cheapest laptop ever at Best Buy and it sucked so bad. And I used like Notepad plus plus or whatever because I didn't know about Sublime Text. And, um, yeah, but I mean, it was like, I had so much free time and my mind was like so chill. I don't know. It was just like a different thing and yeah. I wish I could kind of, go back to that a little bit to where I'm trying to get back into it now where like if I'm on the couch, I put my phone like somewhere else and I do not check it. Like the temptation is so strong to check Twitter. It's so strong. It's so weird. It's weird because like I can tweet basically any of you at any time of the day and I'm probably going to get a response in a few minutes. Yeah. And it's true for me as well. And it's like, even if you, you put the phone across the room, it will somehow end up back on the couch I know. I'm, like, justifying it in my own mind. Well, like, I really do need to check on this thing. And while I'm here, maybe I'll check Twitter, you know. <laughs> it's, like, just justifying my phone usage in my own mind when I should just yeah. be, like, relaxing. It's like well, Sean just pinged me to make a joke. Like, I've already gotten that. I hate that, you know. We shouldn't be that available, but somehow there's a lot of articles on this stuff if you read about it. Like, our need for constant uh uh, yes. I can't think of the word stimulation. reaffirmation, constant stimulation, constant people letting you know that what you're doing is OK. You know, there's a lot of levels to this stuff more than just, oh, I'm addicted to Twitter because it's not really yeah. that. It's something else. I uh, still think hey. phones in general are so weird. Like people call me and they expect me to answer and listen to them at any time of day. And I'm not talk- I'm talking about just anyone, you know, not just programming, but it's like I don't leave my front door just open all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, such a hermit. Kind of- <laughs> there's kind of this double standard with with technology to where like you expect people to be available now. Really, I do- I don't have that. I, I think that the that is like a manifestation of the fact that you're free to launch yourself at somebody and they're free to ignore you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like my dad. I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast, but my dad, <laughs> he says, I love text messages because I can send a text message and you don't have to respond right away. Like I could, for instance, I could send you a text message, you Taylor. And if you're busy, no big deal. Like you can just respond when you have time. But invariably when he sends me a text, like five minutes later, it's like, Hey, did you get my text? <laughs> 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 that happens on Twitter too. They email you, and then you get the tweet letting you know you were just emailed. Like, oh, thanks, because I get email updates too. Wow. I didn't think we'd talk about this, but important. Just wanted to, 
Just wanted to make sure my email went through because they they're known to just disappear all the time. <laughs> I know it's like email is pretty reliable, you know. You don't need to you don't need to verify whether I got it. Pretty reliable. Yeah, I feel bad because I'm I'm probably a little bit too good at letting some of that stuff go. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Well, I think that uh, it's probably a good time to wrap up, huh? Probably so. We're pretty pretty far in. Does anybody have anything they want to bring up while we're while we're here? <clears throat> yeah, I had a little announcement. Um, I've I've sent an email and a tweet <laughs> to Taylor <laughs> saying about it. Um, <laughs> Did he get back to you? Um, he tried. <laughs> The technique with Taylor is if he doesn't respond, he's probably all right. Never mind. Yeah. So it's it's basically like an Easter present for the Laravel community, and uh, I've decided to to make it out and to make it uh, to make it public. So basically, um, probably thousands of hours of work that went into the book, um, the Laravel in action book, um, all the diagrams and the manuscript. I um, I want to donate it to Laravel in general to improve the docs and to um, to the make it really nice. Yeah, there's the about diagrams. as much as much of it as needs to be. So the diagrams, the manuscripts, uh, there's about ten chapters that are ready, and uh, quite a lot of them are very helpful for the beginners, especially, and for those who are just trying to to learn Laravel. Um, I think those diagrams can really improve a lot of the documentation for um, anybody who wants to to learn. And so that's one of the things that I've heard a lot of times on Twitter and on the forums that the docs they need some improvement. And I think I think that would be a great thing to do that to implement some diagrams and some more explanations that are much more in detail. So so Max, right now, if somebody wanted to go and uh, find this content, how could they how could they find it? I'm going to post it up on the blog, but I also sent it as an email to Taylor for him to go through it and to decide if he wants to do this or, or not. Documentation okay. is a very tough thing. Like maybe maybe the Laravel doc should have a section for additional learning or something because you want to be mm-hmm. very careful. Like the documentation, a lot of people criticize it. I actually think it's quite good. But like you want it to be succinct enough that somebody, if they want to learn about sessions or cues, you can click on that page and basically have a good idea of what it can do within a few minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's not like always adding more and more and more to it is better. But you still want to make that information available if people want to dig in more. So how that can be implemented into the docs, um, I don't know. Yeah, and that's one area we haven't really touched on is visual things like Max has created. That's kind of one area we haven't even explored as any kind of picture or anything like that. So that'll be interesting. I'll have to look through them. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I reference the Laravel docs all the time. So like like, I, like Albert Einstein said, like never memorize something that you can look up. Uh, <laughs> I'm always looking at what classes under are under the facades or, you know, any any number of things. So um, I think the Laravel docs are good. I think that there are things, there are omissions, but at the same time, it's really hard to, I don't know, really, really be super complete. I, it's just, it's just really difficult. So it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. It's something that could probably be improved on like anything ever. Um, it's just going to be something that is always going to be difficult. I think, uh, it was something that Taylor mentioned on the last podcast about, uh, like the, like a section on the docs or something for like the beginners to learn MVC, to learn, you know, all those small little things, maybe that could be a good place to do to do it there. 
Yeah, we do kind of make some assumptions on the docs, and I think part of that is because maybe like at the time we were assuming a little too much because people were kind of migrating from other frameworks. But now that Laravel has gotten more popular and more mainstream, it's becoming people's first framework, which wasn't really the case um, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. So, yeah, we are kind of having to recheck some assumptions we make on the docs, I think, in general. Okay, well, I think that's a, that's a good place to uh, kind of wrap it up. Um, thank you guys so much for coming on, Jeffrey, Taylor, and, and Max. Um, this podcast literally couldn't exist without you know you guys coming on and chatting about stuff. I love it. I love the podcast. It's awesome. Me too. <laughs> Hopefully other people like it. Well, we... Yeah, do we know if anyone's actually listening to this? Just <laughs> <laughs> talking out into space. I put the um, Podcast 12 up yesterday, and after 20 minutes, I went to say, oh, I, I wonder if anybody like you know has listened to it. I hit reload, and it was like 250 listens have been started, and I was oh, like, good. wow, that's amazing. Yeah, because you don't want to find out that we've been doing this and like eight people listen to it. No, we have about, <laughs> on average, like 5,000 listens per, per episode. Wow. Sweet. Yeah, awesome. yeah, it's really cool. So, um, if if anybody's listening, if uh, if there are certain things you like or don't like about the podcast, definitely just tweet it at Laravel IO or you know one of us. That's great. Uh, always good to to learn more about it because I think I think we're starting to sort of figure out our voice a little bit. Um, it, it's kind of like experimenty, trying things here and there. But yeah, I think that we're t- kind of figuring out a little bit about what we have to offer. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I like the style of podcast where everyone's just completely honest. So if you're having a lot of trouble, like there's no facade, to use a good word. There's no uh, <laughs> no facade of how you should be. It's just be honest of yeah. of what you're having trouble with or what you don't get. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, everybody. Uh, stay tuned for the next exciting episode of the Laravel IO podcast. <laughs>